Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Have you ever had a loved one with serious health problems have to go to the mainland to get life-saving treatment? Well, we're going to hear about that story today. Glenn Duran, unfortunately, found himself in that circumstance. And we're going to talk with Dr. David Singh about going to discuss the need for when you have a need for advanced cardiac procedures like ventricular assist devices or other types of technological advances. What's going on and how can we bring this technology here to the island so folks who need these life-saving procedures don't feel like it's not available or when they come home, there's not any support to help them. We're going to hear from Mr. Duran, his various family members, and also from Dr. Singh about what we can all do to make this technology more available right here in the islands at home. First in medical news, we've got Dr. Brenda Hernandez on the line. She's the principal investigator of the Hawaii Tumor Registry, and she's here to share more about what's going on with the latest in diagnosis and treatment and the advances going on in the fields of breast and colon cancer. Dr. Hernandez, welcome to The Body Show. Thank you very much. Now, you've made a career out of really being vigilant at trying to monitor, surveil, and report on the epidemiology of cancer. What is special about breast and colon cancer that makes this something really important that we should all be concerned about? Well, they're um, two of the most common cancers diagnosed here in Hawaii, Breast cancer is the number one cancer diagnosed among women by far. Um, we see about a thousand women, over a thousand women diagnosed each year. And for colon cancers, um, it is the third, colorectal cancers are the third most common cancer diagnosed in both men and women and here in Hawaii. So now there's a there's an event that's supposed to help increase public awareness. You know, we always have people who say colon screening and I'll see them in the office and say, time to do your colon test and they'll kind of make a face and I don't want to and I don't have any symptoms and that's not a problem. But yet it's still really important that people take care of their preventative needs. And there happens to be a free public education night that's going on uh, that's coming up. Tell me a little bit more about what that event is for and who are they trying to reach? The event is called Quest for a Cure, and it's an update on breast and colon cancers. And it's going to be taking place this Saturday, October 17th, here at the Cancer Cancer Center of Hawaii, which is located in Kaka'ako at 701 Ilalo Street. And the event is an afternoon event, 1 to 4 p.m. It's a free event open to the public. We'd like as many people to come as possible. And um, there is an RSVP, so you would need to contact either by phone um, or there's other, also information on our website. But we, we would encourage the public to please attend because we have a lot of updates on um, breast and colon cancers, including information about screening and treatment, as well as some of the health disparities we see here in Hawaii. And that's one of the unique aspects of what you do with the tumor registry. I think you have one of the largest registries of people of different ethnic backgrounds that have the information about what their cancer incidence is. And tell us a little bit more about what is going on here that's unique in Hawaii. Well, as you mentioned, you know, because we have a very unique multi-ethnic population here in Hawaii, it's, uh, you know, we have information on all cancer diagnosed throughout the state, and we're able to then compare the different incidence rates and mortality rates among the different ethnic groups. And that's really important information to have in terms of 
um, determining you know, what kinds of risks put people, um, you know, increase what kind of uh, risks people are at um, for developing different types of cancers, including breast and colon cancer. So with uh, breast cancer, you know, we do see a lot of um, ethnic disparities. Um, specifically, we see very high rates in, among Native Hawaiian women. Um, and that is really uh, one of the most important questions that we're trying to address here at the Cancer Center. So it um, may be more than just, it might be more than just not having the availability of having the screening done for them. It may just be a genetic issue as well. Exactly. And so most cancers, you know, are multifactorial in, in terms of the etiology or how they're, how they develop. And that means that there are um, multiple causes, including um, lifestyle factors, um, environmental factors, as well as genetic factors. And so all of those factors um, interact to be to put a person at risk. And so um, by comparing differences by ethnic background, th- those might give us clues into both genetic as well as lifestyle differences um, that account for those differences in, in incidence rates that we see here in the state. Well, and it certainly is of utmost importance because although sometimes people think that cancer is cancer is cancer, it's all the same, treated the same, and people fit into a little protocol of what sort of treatment they need, we're now finding that a lot of these different sorts of tumors and cancers have genetic characteristics that might be the same among cancers, and some of the new novel treatments are things we never thought of before because we found certain genetic mutations that can be targeted with the therapies. Exactly. And so we're finding that, you know, uh, different tumors behave differently and that so all breast cancers are not the same. And it's very important to be able to find the, the different types of molecular subtypes that, um, that that behave differently to different treatments. And so that's actually um, true for most cancers in that there, it, although you may have lung cancers, colon cancers, breast cancers, et cetera, um, they're not the same. And each type of cancer, um, they're very, very different. And, um, you know, so a breast cancer, for example, it's very important for to look at ER or estrogen receptor and progesterone receptor positivity to see whether or not um, how a person, how a woman will de- respond to treatment. And that is a very important tool for the oncologist to determine what type of treatment they will have. Well, and it's certainly one of the things we're seeing in the field of cancer care is that it's a lot about finding out if the tumor will respond to a certain type of chemotherapy or targeted immunotherapy before you give it to the individual. So if we can find if that particular chemo would be successful for that individual, it would be much easier to test it on the tumor rather than the person dealing with side effects, et cetera. We really are at the verge of a huge breakthrough in terms of cancer. I've talked to a lot of folks about it, and there's this emerging field that we're just starting to get into view. So a lot of interesting things going on with the Cancer Center and all the hard work that's going on over there. So this is going to be an event. We just heard a phone ring in the studio. If somebody wanted to call you guys, would they be able to do so? Yes, and so I wanted to give you information for the, so people can contact the Cancer Center if they'd like to attend the event this Saturday. So the number to call is 356-5770. And for those who are computer savvy, what could they do? Okay, so our website is www.uhcancercenter.org.
Well, and it's a public event that's free to provide education from our cancer center here in the islands. I'm so thankful that you put in all the hard work to work with the tumor registry and really to put on such an amazing event that is hoping to increase the awareness for everybody about cancer and what we need to do to help treat those who have it as much as possible with the latest and greatest in technologies, but also help people learn how to diagnose and and screen for it as well, because that's the other component. Yes, and I just wanted to mention that, you know, screening is, is such an important component, and um, colorectal cancer screening um, it will be one of the topics of interest that will be discussed um, this Saturday, and uh, as well as breast cancer screening. So we'll kind of tease out what are the latest screening modalities for those people who don't want to do full colonoscopy. Can they do something else? How often should people do colonoscopy? A lot of these topics that in medicine we've kind of got figured out, but for the general public, they may not have that information yet. And another great venue for them to get that. So thanks so much for joining us today, Dr. Thank Hernandez. Thank you so much. Colon cancer, breast cancer, these are two really important medical issues. And in addition, every year we take a look in the number of deaths from cancer and the number of deaths from heart disease. Both seem to be number one and number two, depending on the year. There might be more in one category or another. So we're going to switch gears a little bit and we're going to talk about heart disease because it's another very important issue for those of us here, pretty much everywhere in the mainland and the U.S., but definitely here in the islands. We've got a unique story we want to share with you. Dr. David Singh is in the studio. He's going to share the latest about how we need to bring some research and advances home, advances home here to Hawaii to help our sickest patients in their time of need. As always, our story is your story, so you can join us at any time at 941-3689, toll free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We're also welcoming Glenn Duran, who is a patient who wound up going to the mainland for life-saving support and for a device that we're going to explain a little more about. We've got his youngest daughter, Erica Gideon, in the studio, and later throughout the hour we're going to hear from his wife and his other son and maybe even a granddaughter and hear about their story and how this has impacted their lives as well. So welcome to all of you here in the studio. Good afternoon. Thank you. Thank you. Now, Dr. David Singh, set this up for us a little bit. We're talking about heart failure, and we're talking about people who have heart troubles. How do you get these sorts of things? When What happens in your body that you get to the point where someone might consider and discuss and diagnose you with something we would call heart failure? Thanks, Kathy. Yeah, so, um, you know, I think it's important to understand that the heart is a pump, and its primary job is to pump blood to your vital organs, to your brain, to your toes, so that you can live, function, and breathe. And there are many things that can compromise the function of that pump. Uh, If someone has a heart attack, the muscle dies and the heart doesn't pump as efficiently. Someone gets a bad virus, the virus can attack the heart, the muscle dies, and it doesn't pump as efficiently. So the syndrome of heart failure is when, for whatever reason, the muscle in the heart isn't able to work as efficiently and as effectively as it should. And because it doesn't pump blood effectively, people develop symptoms associated with heart failure. Some of those symptoms are shortness of breath. They may have difficulty walking long distances. And in its extreme cases, you know, people basically can't do much of anything at all because the heart is so weak. So when we talk about percentages, you know, a lot of people hear about 
how much their heart's pumping. A perfect heart would pump out about 55 or 65 percent of the blood. You can't pump it all out or else you'd have a you'd have no blood in there. So that's a problem. So when we talk about getting down to 10 to 15 percent, which really is about one fifth of your heart's ability to function, that's when we're talking about those severe cases. That's right. So we measure the effectiveness of the heart function in terms of ejection fraction. And that's essentially just like you said, how much blood is ejected every time the heart squeezes. And in a normal heart, about 55 to 65 percent of the blood is ejected out the body. And um, when the heart gets sick, the ejection fraction tends to fall. Now, a moderate to severe heart, a heart failure patient might have an EF of 30 to 35 percent. When you get into the 10 to 15 percent range, those are patients who are extremely sick and without some of the interventions we'll be talking about today, probably won't live for very long. And so that's sort of the story that we're going to talk a little bit more about. Erica, you have a unique perspective on this story. You're going to talk about your dad and what happened to him. And then we're going to talk with you, Glenn, and sort of you have some recollection of what went on, and you'll tell us a little bit more about what it feels like to have gone through this. Erica, set the stage for us. Tell us exactly what happened. Sure. Um, my father was, he was very ill. Uh, we weren't certain uh, that it was heart failure at the time. He had um, very weak legs. He fell numerous times at work and at home. Um, and as he started um, having more shortness of breath um, complications, then his doctor had referred him over to a cardiologist. At that point, he was still going through a testing phase when he realized, um, or the doctor had realized that he should go for further testing. My dad had, in fact, um, just a week prior to him going into the emergency room, he had done a... um, Uh, A stress test. Yes, I'm sorry. He did a stress test um, and he had a very difficult time completing the stress test. Um, For whatever reason, the results from the stress test were delayed. And through that during that time, my dad um, had an episode. My mom actually found him at home. He had fallen over, um, which was, in fact, another heart attack. Um, What we found out later on down the road was that he had already had a previous heart attack. Um, the results from the stress test, which we had not gotten at that point. Um, So my dad was very ill at this point. He was, um, we admitted him into the emergency room at Queens West. Luckily, they had just opened and it was the closest to our home. We live out in, uh, my dad lives out in Waianae. I live out in Kapolei and that was the closest to our home. So we got him there and thankfully so because Queens, um, a doctor at Queens had referred us eventually to get an LVAD. Um, which has, in fact, saved my dad's life. But it was a very long process, a very uh, draining emotionally and financially. It was very draining for us as a family. Um, And it was very uncertain because of the fact that uh, my dad has medical um, with HMSA. He was working at the time, but his medical did not cover a big portion of it, which was transporting my dad from here, from Hawaii, to a facility in San Diego that could do the procedure. And it was very, it was just very, very difficult because my dad was very, very ill and he was at a stage where he may or may not live. There was very few options in here in Hawaii. Um, in fact, the doctor at Queens Medical had basically told us that my dad, my dad's life was... Um, like he was living on a thread and um, 
it was either we could figure out whether or not we could afford to pay for medical transportation to get my dad to the facility or we could schedule hospice. Um, And at this point, it was very difficult for us because there was a huge price tag. And um, well, let's take a moment and let's just define something here. Mm -hmm. Because you mentioned LVAD and Dr. Singh, I'm going to put you in the hot seat. Being the cardiologist that you I are. like that. <laughs> explain to us. Okay, well, you're going to be in the hot seat quite a bit, so I hope you enjoy it. But explain to us what an LVAD is and where at that point might Mr. Duran's ejection fraction have been, mild or significantly decreased. At that situation when he goes into the hospital and they start mentioning this particular device, how bad do you got to be for them to come up with this one? Right. Yeah, thanks. So one thing I should mention is that, you know, I'm not Mr. Duran's physician, and a lot of credit needs to go to Dr. Joanna Magno, who was his heart doctor, who quickly realized that he would need this device. I've just come to know this uh, really amazing family over the past few months. But what was quickly realized by Dr. Magno and others, uh, and there were many others that got him to the mainland, was that his heart was so weak that the traditional things that we can do, whether it's opening up an artery, um, whether it's using a medication like Lasix to pull fluid off the heart, those things weren't going to work. His ejection fraction was 10 to 15 percent. That worst case scenario, that stage, we we stage the heart failure and that's kind of at the last stage. It's what we refer to as end stage heart failure. And at that stage, there are very few options. And uh, fortunately, uh, in the last uh, several years, there have been an onslaught of new devices that can actually help people uh, like Mr. Duran and others. Uh, and the two main categories are, number one, what we refer to as mechanical assist devices, like a ventricular assist device. And that's essentially just taking this idea that the heart is a pump. If we could attach another pump to the heart and take over the functioning of the heart by installing a pump in the heart, then we could actually uh, keep people alive longer. And that's essentially uh, what a mechanical assist device does. The other broad category is that cardiac transplantation is often offered to patients like this where a donor heart is uh, planted, implanted into uh, someone with a very advanced uh, heart failure. And uh, patients can live for many, many years like that as well. Unfortunately, we don't have either of those two options available currently here in Hawaii. So in order to take advantage of those sorts of options, you would have to go elsewhere. And in this case, San Diego was was the place they were considering going. Yeah, that's correct. And this is an enormous undertaking because, as Erica uh, just shared with us, it's not just about raising the money. It's uprooting the family. It's uh, having to stay on the mainland, not just for the procedure, but for the many months afterwards when uh, the patients uh, are in recovery. And then it's coming back here and uh, training everyone, educating the emergency medical services, educating doctors and nurses. You know, it's, it's a big, big operation to get the kind of infrastructure that's required to support these kinds of efforts, but uh, they're absolutely needed um, in order to save uh, many people who are really in need of this kind of thing. 
All right, we're going to talk more about this in just a few moments. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. David Singh, and we're talking about what are some of the new technologies that are available elsewhere that if we start to have people obtain here in the islands might help save lives. And what what else needs to take place? Who needs to be a member of this team so that we can make sure that even for those folks who have gone to the mainland and come back with these sorts of devices, everybody knows how to use them and knows what to do and can serve the needs of that individual as best as possible. As always, our conversation is your conversation. And if you have a question or you've ever been in a situation where you've had to go elsewhere for care, and this is a time to share your story. We're going to hear more from the Duran family in just a few moments, but you can always join us at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We'll be right back. Stay with us. How important is it for our fall fund drive to get off to a fast start? So important that we're offering to anyone who pledges on the first day a chance to win your day at HPR. This customized station visit, usually available as a premium for gifts of $100 a month. But tomorrow, become a member at any pledge level and tell us you want to be a catalyst. For helping spark Celebration 2015, you might get to spend a day with your favorite HPR personalities. Phone lines open tomorrow morning. To have ongoing access to some of the best conversations on the planet, you know, very exciting to, to have a statewide conversation on an ongoing basis. I love hearing what's going on on, on the other islands. You know, it's not, it's not an interruption to my day to hear what's going on. I'm Dwayne Preble, and I'm a sustaining member of Hawaii Public Radio. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Straub Clinic and Hospital, Infinity of Honolulu, and Gourmet Events Hawaii. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with a very important story. We have got Dr. David Singh, who's here, and he is talking a bit about what's going on as far as some of the latest technologies in helping people with advanced stages of heart failure. We're also going to be hearing personally from someone who's been affected by this, Mr. Glenn Duran. He actually, unfortunately, was diagnosed with a severe case of heart failure and had to go to the mainland to actually be able to save his life and obtain the device that is something that really is life-saving and there's no other there's no other way to describe it and he's here with us and we're going to be talking with him if you've ever gone to the mainland and had to have a procedure done there you know you can always join us at 941-3689 toll-free 877-941-3689 if you're enjoying hearing from the Duran family we're going to be continuing to talk with them and luckily we have our cardiology expert Dr. David who's here in the studio to explain all the important hard stuff now, right before the break, we were talking with Erica. She is the daughter of Glenn Duran, the man who had to go to, to San Diego for this procedure. And, Glenn, I'd like to hear from you. Now, you have some recollection of what's happened, and you kind of woke up on the mainland and sort of realized, hey, there's something going on. First of all, tell me, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing great today uh, right. with this Elved. The Elved actually, well, making, well, I feel a lot better than what I was before I had the uh, the heart attack that I had. Now, do you remember prior to that, were you having, 
you know, a lot of people sometimes wonder, what does it feel like to have a heart attack? There's that classic thought that everybody thinks of, which is, you know, chest pain and and suddenly I'm sweaty. And of course, that's what it is. And then there are these other subtler events where somebody might not even realize that they've had a heart attack and maybe they just feel more tired or maybe their legs are weaker or they can't go up the stairs as easy. And they just figure, hey, I'm getting old. Hey, I'm tired. I haven't slept enough. Did something like that happen to you? Did this kind of sneak up on you? Yeah, it did. It was, uh, actually, when I was, uh, as uh, days would go on, my legs first got weaker. Couldn't walk as far as I could. Actually, shortness of breath. And I was, like I said, uh, perspiring a lot. So you just kind of didn't realize these symptoms were that serious. No. And then you did a stress test, and then the story Erica told us is before the results even came back, you had another event, and right. your wife found you at home. Uh-huh. What's the first thing you remember? Well, the first thing I remember is when, uh, well, when, when I was at home, that's actually the only thing I remember when I was at home, I was out doing my daily daily routine, you know, doing things, and I was noticing that just to walk out from my, like, from my front door down to uh, the garage, took me, I had to rest maybe from it's about 50 feet. I had to rest me about three or four times just to get there. So and you recognize that wasn't yeah, the way it used to be. Yeah, that, so that, you know, that kind of rang a bell on me. So I did what I had to do. I just had to get out of the house do that. Then when I walked back to the house, it took me actually twice as long just to get back. Same amount of distance, everything. <coughs> then finally when I did get in, I was set. I was so tired. I just made it to my recliner, sat down, and just you know just resting. It was all right when I sat down. You know everything was to me was all right. So at that one point in time, I had to go to the restroom, to the bathroom. Then I stood up. Then I fell over. So that was that event when your wife found you down. Well, yeah, well, before that, actually, I was home at, by myself at that point in time. Then just to get to the bathroom, I had to actually crawl on my floor just to get there. And when I finally got there, it's like everything I had to do was just was a job, you know, just Too to, much effort, okay. Yeah, just to get up on the, the water, the toilet, I was just thinking to myself, you know, how am I going to get up there, you know, because... I was so weak, I couldn't actually move. So as I was just sitting there resting, I, I tried to rest there. I finally kind of pushed myself, and I finally got on. So even something that we all take for granted, right. like going to the bathroom, was such a difficult task for you yeah. that you realized, hey, there's something big going on. Yeah. And that kind of led you down this whole medical adventure, uh-huh. for lack of a better term, that has been life-saving for you. We actually have a caller on the line I want to talk with, Ray from Eva Beach. Ray, you mentioned that you're kind of dealing with something similar. Yes. My husband um, is actually on a heart transplant list at UCSF um, in San Francisco. We just got back from a trip, and I just was wondering from this family who's going through the same thing, um, maybe what, what would be some... Uh, what would they ad- give us as advice as we go through this? We're, we're just sort of starting on this journey. Sure. You're in the very beginning of what could be a very long journey for you, and it's so difficult. Here you are on a heart transplant list in a different state. 
And so there's that whole element of when and if there's a transplant available, logistics. And boy, if there's somebody who knows about logistics, Glenn's son, Glenn. You guys made it easy for me today, Glenn. (laughs) Double Glenn. Glenn Jr. You know, you've kind of dealt with this and you've dealt with the financial implications, but also being the son, watching your dad go through this. Do you have any advice for Ray? You know, they're on a transplant list. They're just starting on this journey that you guys have been on and kind of been through. What are some of the things that Ray may not realize that she and her husband need? Well, I I know it's an an uphill battle right now and uh, just the confusion and the the scaredness that you're feeling. Um, we, We felt it all the way from the start to finish, and we're still going through it. I mean, as far as what we went through with my dad in the beginning, um, it was just the uncertainty, the um, the worried about if you're going to get that call kind of thing, and then also trying to get the financial part down. As far as my advice to uh, the caller, just don't give up hope. Just, oh, just be there and do whatever you have to do because that's what we did. Tell me about some of the things that you wound up doing. Now, Ray's in a different circumstance. They're on a transplant list, and right, hopefully, right. you know, her husband will be healthy enough should they ever require yeah. going to San Francisco that he can make that trip pretty quickly and easily on a regular flight. But that wasn't necessarily the case when you and your family were dealing yeah. with this. What exactly happened? Um, well, So your dad's in the hospital. He, what do you hear next? He, got, he, he finally went into the hospital. I mean, as far as the emergency part. Um, we got him in there. We found out the, the, the worst-case scenario that we could find out. And then the next step was finding out what it would take to actually make him better. And even that wasn't a guarantee. But we didn't care. We we felt he was too young to to just give up on him. How old are you, Glenn? I'm putting <coughs> you in the I'm, – I'm just 61. throwing you under the bus. <laughs> 61. Yeah. 61. And when this happened, how old were you? 60. 60. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. you're a young guy yeah. Oh, yeah. at 60. <laughs> I mean, I mean my, you know – not to suggest that if you're 80, you shouldn't do these things, but boy, at 60, this is sort of, you know, 60 is the new 50 or something <laughs> like that. So, okay. So you're a young guy and, right. and Glenn Jr., you're hearing about this. Yeah. I mean, I was excited for my dad because he's getting to that age where he's close to retirement. He can start to enjoy his life maybe. And um, all of this started to happen. Um, prior to this, he was going through all his medical difficulties. Wasn't sure exactly what was going on um, with his old physician or his old doctor that we went, we used to go through. We were kind of getting mixed signals, so we decided to, he, like like any other dad, I guess, he'd be kind of stubborn as far as, like, we tell him, you know, when you seek other, I mean, medical attention and whatnot. Your dad's stubborn? I can't oh, imagine. I could. <laughs> I hope my dad's listening. He's uh, yeah. hard-headed as well. I'm with you. Okay. So it's like, he's, yeah, he was like, he was like um, I'll, 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 well, well, maybe I'll do it later. I'll do it later and whatnot. And then l- later came real quick. And when it did come, luckily, like my sister had said earlier, that um, we were able to take him to Queens. And uh, they they were like a godsend to us. I mean, but as far as like with my dad, I mean, just to take it back a little bit, um, I know he was, you, you earlier you were talking about the symptoms as, as far as a heart attack. My, do- my dad is also a di- um, diabetic. And the symptoms for a diabetic, I was told, it's they don't feel the same things as a regular yeah. person who doesn't have diabetes. Absolutely. And, yeah. Diabetes affects your nerves, right, right. Glenn. So he was if your feeling, nerves don't work, what are you going to feel? Right, right. He was feeling the, the, the stomach tension, I guess, mm-hmm. and the, the strain in his shoulders and whatnot. And he thought it was just, you know, just a headache or whatever going on and whatnot, just a stomachache. And um, come to find out, he, he was having actually heart attacks prior to his major episode that he had. 
So let's talk about that moment. So you're there in the hospital. You find out your dad has end-stage heart failure. You're told that there is a device that could help him. We don't have it here in the islands. You have to go somewhere else. And we don't know how you're going to get there and how you're going to do it. But it's not like you can go put them on Hawaiian Airlines and say, let's fly to San Diego. I mean, it's a bit more complicated when you're that sick. Right. Take me to that moment. Okay. Uh, Because of the condition that he was in, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think he was his heart was running at like five percent at the time, and um, the, all the machines that he was hooked up to, he actually went through procedures prior to him leaving because he he wasn't doing so well. And uh, when we found out that he had to he had to be flown over, and like you said, we he can't just go on Hawaiian Airlines or whatever. But um, when he when we did find out what what he had to do, um, they told us that they need specialists and all these technical people to come on over and. They had to bring basically him and all the machines there. Like a medical ambulance. Right, right. Yeah, and that's what it was. And that's, a, that's another thing is like a lot of people here don't know about a medical ambulance and whatnot. And as far as like getting um, like maybe insurance for it and, and they, they don't cover it here, you know. Because when it came to my dad to, to do it, it, it started off at when we first told 35000 35, Then it went up $10,000 increments every every time we spoke to the doctor. And it ended up being a about 72000 just to fly him over. So just to get from Honolulu International Airport yes. to San Diego yes. required an air ambulance yes. with technicians, medical professionals, exactly. devices, and everything. Right. And the cost of this was over $70,000 yes. that yeah. you guys just had to somehow yeah. come up with. Yeah. How did you do it? Um, we exhausted every resource we had. I mean, I, I, I took out a loan, whatever loan I could make, and... Um, we thank God we had my grandparents that was there. They had some money to to put in to the pot to pay for the bill and whatnot. And then my mom actually she took out from her retirement. We we just did whatever we had to do. Wherever there was an extra exactly. dime, it was exactly. funding this. Right. So now you get him there. Right. It was so easy, right? Uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. So he's there. Who went with him? How did you guys all figure out who was going to oh. go and how do you? How do you find a place to stay and all the logistics? That's what Ray's looking at. My, my sister and I, my, me and my two sisters, amazing. I mean, when my father went over, my mom definitely had to fly over with him on the air ambulance. Um, we knew she couldn't handle it by herself. She was going through a lot of stress at the time. And she was trying to make, make do of what, what she had. And she was, she was real hopeful, but then she, we knew she was nervous. So me and my younger sister and actually my two sisters, we decided, you know what? We need to go up there with her and whatnot. But being that all of us have families, we, we couldn't just all go up at one time and leave our families here to fend for themselves, you know. So I did, we decided, me and my youngest sister, Erica, we decided to go up just to stay with my mom and then try to help her get set up and settled and whatnot. We were, like, going around from hotel to hotel, basically, and uh, um, just trying to figure out what to do. And then half the time we are staying at the hospital. just And that, like, like they are saying, the people at Sharp Memorial, Unreal staff. I mean, they <clears throat> they made us feel so welcome there, and they they took care of my dad like like he was he was one of the most important people that they needed to take care of. How long was he in the hospital? Whew. When well, I I was up there for about three weeks, about two and a half three weeks, and he was there the whole time. Um, we were waiting as far as um him to go through the procedure because he also had pneumonia, and his lungs I guess were filled with liquid and whatnot. So we they had to let that subside first before they could actually operate. And when the time came, <clears throat> they they did the procedure and whatnot, and it was just awesome. I mean, just just what they did and what they took care of and the way that they made us feel and whatnot. 
I mean, to the point where they were like, you know what? Don't don't wait here in the waiting room. You guys are gonna you're just gonna stretch yourselves out. Just go out and go have lunch and whatnot, and we'll keep in contact with you. And they did. He, so that constant communication yeah, and, yeah. you know, Glenn Sr., that's what I'm going to call you, Glenn Sr. <laughs> right now, so you were in the hospital. Do you remember much of that hospital stay? Well, the only the, the thing I remember when I first got up is I asked my, actually my daughter, Erica, youngest one that, oh, I don't know if I can say that, where the heck am I right now? <laughs> because, you know, when I got up, I kind of know uh, Queens Hospital, you know, when I look up. I wasn't that much out of it. I was out of it, but, you know, I could notice things. And I asked to, what the heck am I right now? So then you found out, hey, you were yeah. actually in a different state. <laughs> yeah, I was. then she told me, oh, you're in San Diego. I go, what the heck am I doing here? You know, I didn't know. Yeah. Then while staying there, the nurses and the doctors always was by my bedside, you know, always checking up on me. That's about the only thing actually I remember after after that episode for me was just re- rehabilitating my uh, rehabbing myself to get back into shape so that you could be strong enough to make it back to yeah. Hawaii. Yeah. How long did it take you? How long were you gone entirely? I was gone up there but just about 6 months. About 6 months. Yeah. And so when you came home, <clears throat> you could get on a regular plane. And you could actually make it back. Yeah, yeah. Unlike when you went, you were so sick you needed an air ambulance. Yeah. Right, right, the way right. home, it was sort of a celebration. You were healthy enough to sit in a regular seat. Yeah, yeah. I was able to sit in a regular seat. I wasn't that healthy, but the, I was at the point where I was kind of determined to get back and, you know, continue my life. <coughs> now, Dr. Singh... With this sort of situation, when somebody requires this extra pump, the left ventricular assist device, or, you know, in Ray's situation when her husband uh, hopefully gets a transplant, he's on this transplant list, how difficult is it for folks when they come home? Because since the procedure is not done here, how do they how do they get followed up? How do people know what to do? If so, I saw somebody who came into my office and said, Hey, what should I do about this left ventricular assist device? I'd be calling you on speed dial saying, <laughs> Dr. David, I've got somebody that I don't know what to do about. How do they get the follow-up that they need when they haven't had the initial procedure done here and we don't have that level of expertise? Or maybe we do, but it's not being utilized to help them follow up. Right. I think that's uh, really quite literally the million or multi-million dollar question because the amount of infrastructure that's required to care for patients like these is massive. For example, Mr. Duran, because of the kind of pump that he has, if you were to feel for his pulse, you wouldn't feel it. And you can imagine a paramedic showing up to his doorstep and let's say he's unconscious or not doing well or and they feel for his pulse. Actually, his heart might be totally being supported by the pump. But <clears throat> the EMR might not know that his particular device results in no pulse. So it's much more about training everyone that might come into contact with patients such as these from the emergency medical personnel to doctors. Most um, centers that have advanced heart failure programs have 
advanced heart failure cardiologist that specialize in just heart failure. And certainly that's something at Queens that we're working towards is how do you set up an infrastructure that's capable of supporting not just one patient, but many, many patients who have devices like these. The same goes for transplant. Transplant cardiology has become so immensely complicated with all of the different immunosuppressive regimens, all of the different types of medications that need to be used, all the things that can go wrong. But the good news is is that patients who get transplant can live for years and years. The median survival for a heart transplant uh, person in this country now is over 10 years. But it does require a lot of expertise and a lot of specialty. And we're hoping very much uh, that in the next several years, um, we'll have that kind of technology available here on the island. Well, because it certainly sounds like we need it. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. David Singh, and we're hearing the story from Glenn Duran Sr. and Glenn Duran Jr. about what happened in their circumstances and how they were able to pool resources as a family and find a way to save their dad's life. And he's sitting here with me in the studio looking pretty darn good, so they've done a great job of it. When we come back, we're going to hear from his wife and also his granddaughter and hear a little bit more about how this has affected their lives and talk a little bit about how we can advance cardiac care here in the islands, hopefully sooner rather than later. As always, you can join us at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. Coming up on the next Bluegrass Breakdown, they won a Grammy for Best Bluegrass Album and were named the IBMA 2011 Entertainers of the Year. Since 2009, they've collaborated with Steve Martin and have blown the hinges off the doors of every venue they've played. I'm Dave Higgs, and the Steep Canyon Rangers will be picking live in honor of their new album, Radio, on the next Bluegrass Breakdown. Sunday night at 11. My name is Paul Mancini. I live in Maui. We've been participants in underwriting Hawaii Public Radio for almost two decades. We feel it's almost a privilege to do it because we feel we're bringing something important to the community, something that's important to us, and a certain sense of pride in getting that done. Hawaii Public Radio, celebrating partnership, building community. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Nohea Gallery and Kaiser Permanente. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. David Singh, and we are talking today about advanced cardiac procedures and what will it take to have these types of things available here locally at home so that families like the Duran family don't have to try and find a way to make this happen somewhere on the mainland, which is wonderful that it did, but then come back and kind of feel like they're sort of left in the dark as far as what to do next. Now, before the break, we were hearing from Glenn Sr. and Glenn Jr. about how this has affected their lives and what has happened since then. And Dr. Singh, you've mentioned a little bit about heart transplant folks can live up to 10 years, if not longer, if they have a transplant done and that's successful and they're managed with their medications well. What about folks who have these extra pumps, these left ventricular assistive devices. How long is their life expectancy? And I know it's it's hard to say because, you know, it depends on their unique circumstance, but is there an average? 
Yeah, so the median survival is about five years, and I should point out that probably the best experts on the island on these devices are the family that we have with us today. They can tell you that the the longest living bad patient is at 12 years now. So it does vary from patient to patient, but for sure it can take someone from death's door and give them many, many uh, years uh, of good quality of life. Mr. Duran was telling me earlier today, uh, you know, I was asking him what he does with his time. Apparently he's an amazing welder, and he's able to go his first... First thing, the first thing he asked uh, when he woke up pretty much was, can I still weld? And, you know, thanks to the miracle of this technology, he's able to, you know, weld things again, which I think is just incredible. Sure. To restore someone's activities that bring them the most joy is really, that's, that's an important thing. If only he could weld money, you know, <laughs> then he could weld himself some money to, to deal with all the loans that it sounds like everybody had to take on his behalf, and lovingly so. You know, that's the one impression I get from everybody here is you would do it all again in a heartbeat should that be the situation. Now, Evelyn, Glenn's your husband. You know all about this story. What, in, what seemed to surprise you the most about your husband's journey? You know, if I was to tell any family, I would do this in a heartbeat again, all over again. I would dig to see if I could get finances to get my husband the way he is now. Because like that woman that called from Eva, for heart transplant, it takes a while and you don't know if you can get a heart. Okay, And when you do, thankfully, thank God, you know. But then, too, you don't know how long the patient will last. So the LVAD is just something that temporarily, before a heart transplant, can give you lifelong years with your husband or wife or whoever it is that goes through this. And I've, I've had family that died because of heart problems, you know. And I no longer get to see them anymore. And my husband, thank God... You know, I have him back. And he, you know, he would not be here today if it wasn't for hospitals like Queens and people like Dr. Magno that knew about the LVAD. And that lady in Eva, if you, if you have to wait for that transplant, if you can get the LVAD temporarily, do that. Because, you know what? Over here in Hawaii, it's ohana and love. Aloha. And I know the families here in Hawaii are tight. And when you lose someone, it's forever. But if you can just cherish a little bit more moments and years, even if it's just 12 years, or when, but that's 12 years he can watch his grandchildren grow, graduate, do whatever. Even you if love. it's one year, absolutely. Yes. That, yes. You know, just having that... That extra time is really important. Now, you mentioned something curious, and, you know, not everybody who is a candidate for the ventricular pump is a candidate for transplant. Sometimes there are unique circumstances for both. Uh, Dr. Dr. Singh, tell me a little bit about the difference between having a ventricular assist device permanently versus if this is ever used as sort of a bridge to transplantation? Yeah, that's a great question. So, yeah, I think it's important to realize, you know, there are patients who have heart failure who may do very well for a long period of time. And the key is early recognition. You know, Mr. Duran was in a difficult place because it happened so quickly. And in those cases, sometimes VADs are the only option. There are other patients who may know about it and they get plugged into a place like UCSF or Cedars or Sharp. Uh, and 
and they have the luxury of being able to travel and get transplanted. Currently in the U.S., we use ventricular assist devices in two different scenarios. One is if someone is extremely sick and we don't think they're uh, instantly a good candidate for transplant. Sometimes physicians will implant the ventricular assist device as a bridge and basically get the patient healthier, allow the heart to recover a little bit, get them stronger. And then once that occurs, they take the device out and put a new heart in and transplant the patient. And that's called bridge to transplantation. Other patients are referred to as destination therapies. When patients might not be Uh, candidates for transplants really long-term at all, then we implant the device uh, and consider it to be uh, their accessory pump, and they live with that pump for the rest of their life. All right. We've got a caller on the line. We've got a Dr. McCaffrey, and he wants to share something about his thoughts on the topic. Welcome to The Body Show. Aloha. Aloha. Dr. Scott McCaffrey, uh, just sworn in as president of the Hawaii Medical Association, and I wanted to call and thank you, Dr. Kozak, for your great show. And also to thank Dr. Singh for some of the pioneer work he's been doing and the technologies he's been bringing in. He and other, other great cardiologists we have here in Hawaii. You know, we're, we're, not, we're not the Pacific Rim. We're the hub of the Pacific Rim. And I speak on behalf of the, all the doctors with the Hawaii Medical Association and doctors statewide. To, uh, with the congratulations and, and encouragement to continue to bring high levels of technology here to our state for the betterment of the people in Hawaii. And I want you guys to know that we're behind you as a medical association all the way. All right. Well, thank you for those strong words of support. I know that means a lot to the Duran family and from the hard efforts and pioneering efforts, as you mentioned, of Dr. Singh to really help us to bring this technology locally here to the islands so that we can we can help people and our families live longer. So thanks for sharing that word of support from the Hawaii Medical Association and all the hard work that all of the doctors and the patients and the nursing staff and the families do to really try and keep everybody as healthy as possible. Yes, absolutely. I think the family, the family member that just spoke said it so perfectly. Uh, you can talk a lot about you know, cost control and and looking at large demographics and so forth. But if it's your loved one or you who are, whose life's on the line, uh, it doesn't matter how many dimes it costs. So what we have to do is figure out ways to get the, the financial support into our community to develop this and, and other high-tech miracles that are that this technology is, is bringing to the people. So. So nice job, and thank you very much. I'll sign off now. Mahalo. All right. Thank you for sharing those words of support. You know, while Dr. McCaffrey was on the phone, we also had another shy caller that said, if people are concerned about this, take a look at, you know, he mentioned different insurance plans. You know, Aflac, I always see that quacking duck everywhere. And, you know, there are some ways that you can try and, and I think Glenn Jr. had mentioned, try and provide some sort of insurance most people don't even know about if they have any coverage for procedures needing to be done in the mainland, air ambulance, and all these various types of things that sometimes there is some money to be found. But it's always, you know, retrospectively you go, but I never thought I needed it. And so if you want to prospectively get on that, that's always something that you can do. Yeah, I encourage everybody to look at your medical insurance coverage, find out find out what it covers, find out what it doesn't, and see if you can in some way supplement that. God forbid you should ever have a need because that's really something that, you know, we have insurance, but accidents are just that, unpredictable, unfortunate, 
and not something we can foresee very readily in the future. Now, Evelyn, we were talking a little bit about what has happened and how you've really felt like you would walk down this road again and again, no matter what happens. What sort of function level does your husband have now? When you see him every day and you see him get up and he's welding things and doing things that he loves, is he okay now? Can you take a deep breath and feel like well, he he's takes safe? a lot of medications? Okay, and he has to because that pump that's next to his heart is doing all that work and it has to have the blood thin enough so that it can go through and work flow through his. His kidneys are a lot better because of that pump because it's letting all his internal organs get more blood. Sure, they need blood flow. Yep. If they don't get it, exactly. they get mad. Right, we're giving it to him now. They're happier. Okay. <laughs> so, we're we're giving it, you know, with the LVAD every morning. I have to check. I he he what he does is he's on batteries during the day, and then at night when he goes to bed, he has to plug into the wall unit. Um, the, he has two. He has a battery charger, a big battery charger, and he also has a component that that you can plug into the wall unit and it'll charge. It, you can connect it directly to him on his on his drive. So he's literally electronic. He's yes. like an energizer yes. bunny. Well, it's it, it's like nowadays you have computers, cars with electrical components, and you have mechanics to deal with electrical. We need those in Hawaii for these LVAD patients because we're getting more of them. We definitely do. Now, Erica, you've come back. I think a granddaughter was out there, looked a little shy, (laughs) might have been a little intimidated by the microphone, but I'm certain she has a lot to say about having her granddad still here. Absolutely. There, you know, there is no price tag um, to a loved one's life. In our case, our dad really is our hero. Um, At the time, we were financially strapped and we had made a online account um, to try and fundraise funds in a desperate attempt um, to save my dad's life. And I think we would all stand by it and say that it's priceless. Having my dad here, having him at my son's games, having him at family dinners, um, we would do it all over again. And I think my mom said it perfectly. I do have to you know, say that we do wish and we continue to pray that doctors like Dr. Singh, Dr. Magno, Dr. Tran, and yourself um, and other insurance carriers and whomever else that is involved in making those decisions will someday soon bring the program here, whether it's a transplant program or an LVAD program, because the people of Hawaii need it. My dad still struggles with the fact, you know, he is here because home is where your family's at. And we're all here in Hawaii. So my dad is home. But Every day he goes to sleep, you know, and there is a fear if the electricity will go out. There's a fear of what will what what will happen if something goes wrong. You know, we have a telephone number that we can call for sure. And there's some kind of reassurance in that. But it's nothing like having a facility nearby that we can go and, you know, that reassurance. Once you're in an emergency room and doctors are taking care of you, there's that reassurance and that settling feeling like someone's taking care of me that knows what they're doing. That's not the case for my dad. Many doctors here in Hawaii and many emergency um, personnel, nurses, doctors, they are not educated about the LVAD program. And we would love to see it here in Hawaii, not just for my dad, but for everyone else and for everyone else's lives that it could save, for sure. 
Dr. Singh, what are you pioneering, pioneering here? Dr. McCaffrey said you're doing some really amazing work to try and bring some of these programs here to the islands. What sort of efforts can other people do to help you? Yeah, well, I should point out that I am not a heart failure doctor. I'm a cardiologist, and I specialize really in electrical disorders. But, you know, as a cardiologist, I see patients like Mr. Duran uh, before he got his bed very often. And um, as a cardiologist who's fairly new to Hawaii, but um, who considers Hawaii to be my home, um, I feel very strongly, you know, that uh, no one should ever have to make the kinds of decisions that this family had to make or be put in the position of uh, liquidating their retirement or letting someone they love pass away. And so uh, not just myself, but many cardiologists here and uh, administrators are working very hard to try and build up an infrastructure so that we can accommodate more people. I think the most important thing is for the public to be aware of this uh, need um, so that legislators can be aware of it and support us, uh, whether it's financial or otherwise. Uh, Basically, we just need a lot of help uh, and support uh, to make sure that once we do get the ball rolling, which hopefully will be within the next year or so, that people understand just how critical it is. Because not, you know, a month goes by when we don't see another patient similar to the situation who isn't able to make that trip to the mainland and unfortunately, ultimately uh, will pass away. And so the reason they're not able to make it is ju- is usually financial. It is often financial, but as we were saying earlier, you know, a lot of it, you know, I had a patient uh, not not too long ago who was younger than Mr. Duran who really needed uh, a VAD, and he didn't want to make the trip because he didn't want to be a burden to his family. And it was ultimately his choice, and we all tried to talk about of it, and uh, but he really felt like that's not the direction he wanted to go in. And that's a, such a terrible position to be in. It's so hard, not just for the patient, but for the patient's family. And you've heard the story today. Imagine having to uproot your entire life and transplant it to the mainland and stay with your family member. And it's it's much more than just money. The money is a big deal, as we've heard today. But there's so much more that needs to go into this, uh, including uh, everything that happens there. And as you've pointed out, Kathy, what happens when people come back and how to support patients and their families uh, once they return. Well, and I'll be honest, I'm one of those folks who, you know, in my training, I heard that there were these great cardiac procedures, but, you know, left ventricular assist devices are sort of a newer component to the technology of how we handle heart failure. And unless we have that training experience, you know, I wouldn't be aware that he wouldn't have a pulse and that would be normal. Yeah. I mean, to me, we're always taught in medical school, no pulse equals big problem. Right. Either you're not good at checking them or that person is not alive. And yet now we're seeing these other advances. And we've seen that the community has, has adapted and brought some of the oncology advances. We've brought some of the advances in other areas, endocrinology, diabetes, in all these other sorts of venues. And yet knowing that cardiovascular disease and cancer are both number one and two neck and neck each year with the number of mortalities that occur. We really have to look 
carefully at what might be going on regarding the cardiac patients who need some extra help. We need to put some effort into that as well. Absolutely. And the good news is that there's hope. You know, we're very proud of one of our former cardiology trainees who's now uh, in Los Angeles uh, studying advanced heart failure and transplantation. And the hope and expectation is that she's going to return in a few months and help uh, start up a heart failure transplant program. So there's a lot of things to look forward to on the horizon. Uh, Dr. Magno and other cardiologists are working hard to take care of the VAD patients on island who who are here. And, um, you know, we have a heart failure nurse practitioner at Queens who is incredible and deals with uh, the sickest of the sick day in and day out. So there are a lot of great things happening now. And our expectation, because we believe that people in Hawaii deserve all the same kinds of treatments uh, that people on the mainland have, the expectation is that this will happen uh, and it's going to take time and effort, but it will become a reality. All right. Well, I want to thank you for sharing your expertise and for all the hard work that you do to help bring heart failure to the level of prominence that we can treat it here in the islands. I want to thank the Duran family for coming forward and sharing their story because that's also another inspiring tale to help all of us. If you'd like to hear the show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org and follow the links to the Body Show podcast. You can also find us on Facebook. Our engineer is David Chong, our executive producer, Beth Ann Kozlovich. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week right here on The Body Show. See you then. Woo!